So this is, as Dr. Ahmed said, my new book, A Rope from the Sky, The Making and Unmaking of the World's New Estate. I get asked very often about the title of the book, so I'm going to start there. And as happened the other night, I imagine some folks in the room may know this story. But in the Nilotic folktales of South Sudan, both in Dinka, Nuer, and other Nilotic cultures, the earth and the sky were once linked by a rope. And that meant that people could travel up and down that rope between the earth and the heavens, and they had access to the gods and to eternal life. And tragically, once upon a time, on account of human error, that rope was severed, and humans thereafter were resigned to the difficulties and mortality and suffering of the human condition. And I came across that parable during my time in, in South Sudan and hung on to it, and I thought it was appropriate here for South Sudan's story, as this book, in some ways, too, is a story of Paradise Lost. So before we go any further, you already heard way too much about me, but I'm going to say a little bit about my experience in Sudan, not least because we have a lot of Sudanese and South Sudanese here. So you have a sense of my own perspective, the lens through which I observed and participated in some of these events we'll talk about today. First, as Dr. Ahmed mentioned, I worked for the International Crisis Group, which I had some questions outside about. This is a global organization that does kind of in-depth research and political analysis on conflict and the resolution of conflict. I was first in South Sudan in mid-2009, two years before independence, where things were really starting to heat up. I was there at independence, and I continued reporting from South Sudan and Sudan for a year after independence. This period included both that transition, the high-stakes negotiations between North and South over their separation, etc. Thereafter, as you mentioned, I went to work in the Obama administration. You remember him? Yeah, I miss him too. I mentioned to a friend last night that I've been in the UK for about three days and I've already been asked three dozen times or so, are American politics really as crazy as they seem right now? And I'm here to report absolutely yes, it's worse than it looks from here, sadly. So I was the policy director for the US Special Envoy, as he mentioned. I was involved in the shuttle diplomacy when the war in South Sudan broke out in 2013. I was then an advisor to the EGAD-led mediation, the regional mediation that attempted to write the first peace agreement in South Sudan in 2015 and usher in a political transition, which ultimately failed to do so. This is the signing of the peace agreement in 2015. And when people ask about that experience, I usually just point at the faces of the heads of state in the back there. You can see they were ready to be done with it as well. I also worked on the, I've got asked about this outside, on the bilateral relationship between the United States and Sudan, um, really an area I was initially interested in. And so, as Dr. Ahmed mentioned, worked on the framework agreement that helped restart bilateral conversation between Washington and Khartoum, and ultimately led to some of the sanctions being lifted, though the process is very much only in its first stage. So with that, I'll tell you where I start the book, with a character called Simon, who we meet on the night of the violence as it broke out in South Sudan on December 15, 2013. Simon is a young, new-air boy, originally from a place called Akobo. He grew up in the region. He grew up in a refugee camp in Kenya. He's recently back to South Sudan. He's a student at a secondary school, and he hears the violence begin. He's going to bed one night, and he comes out, and he sees tracer bullets crisscrossing the night skies, and he hears machine guns coming closer and closer, and he is forced to make a decision that night that so many others made to run for his life to a United Nations camp. And when he gets there, he finds himself alongside several thousand others who are banging on the door of the UN gates to try and get in and escape the violence that night. From there, we flash back to July 9th, 2011, the day when the whole world was watching South Sudan, Independence Day. 
Simon is in his new suit that his brother brought him, his first ever suit. He's dancing and singing and shouting, South Sudan, oye! And he's incredibly excited. The euphoria of the moment, as so many others likewise felt. He listens to the words of his leaders and his expectations swell at the promise of a new beginning. So that's where we're going to start in the same way, by juxtaposing both the high and low of the story. And from there, we'll begin our discussion. So this is just a short video of Independence Day. This is at Freedom Square in Juba. You see the South Sudanese flag going up and the Sudanese flag on the left coming down. An exciting moment, also a complicated moment for lots of Sudanese, not least in the north. And from there, we're juxtaposed with just 30 months later. So just as we have in the book, and I meant to mention, those are obviously difficult images and graphic images, but I think really bring home the gravity of the moment and the contrast between just 30 months' time. So with this, we frame the narrative of the story and the narrative of this book. And whether you're new to this or whether you're not new to this, I think a lot of us were left with this question. What exactly went so wrong? And from there, both today and in the book, we remind and attempt to unpack just exactly what happened. Just so you know where I'm going today, First, I'll say a bit about the structure of the book. I've then chosen three questions from the book, and we'll provide some highlights, some preview of how these questions are answered. First is a kind of political autopsy on South Sudan's liberation movement, the SPLM. Second is a question about the role of the West. And finally, we'll consider South Sudan the independent republic, the state's viability and its path to state formation. We'll then have a, a significant chunk of time for question and answer, as I know there's a pretty well-informed crowd here. This is by no means a comprehensive presentation of South Sudan's making and making or of the book, but I've chosen to pick out a few of these elements which I believe warranted further review in the book and I think speak to understand both South Sudan's recent history and its current predicament, and lastly, which I think, imagine and expect will spark some discussion. So very quickly, some folks who know this timeline inside and out, some folks who are very new to this. This is the kind of period in question that the 2005 peace deal in Sudan and two decades of civil war between North and South. It outlines a series of reforms. It sets up a regional government in South Sudan, and it sets forth a goal of making unity attractive. So the aim is to reform the system such that North and South may continue in a unified state. It also, as you know, enshrines a right to self-determination for the South Sudanese. So at the end of this sort of six-year trial period, known as the interim period, the Southerners can decide. Do they want to stay in the North or would they like to secede and form their own country? So this book attempts to weave narratives that I think are, I hope, sort of weave together local and global. It's first a South Sudanese story, one about hope and survival and liberation and opportunity and disappointment and hopefully redemption. But it's also an international story about a unique episode in modern history uh, really an unprecedented experiment in international state building and in many ways a cautionary tale. And finally, it's a story of picking up the pieces and starting over again, an uncertain quest to salvage a republic from the shards of a shattered dream. This is not an academic study, but rather a narrative that we come to understand in part through a series of characters. So in the book, along the way, we'll meet the nation's quote-unquote big men, figures you know and who played a pivotal role. Salva Kiir, there's a chapter called The Accidental President. After that, there's a chapter on Riyak Mashar called Rebel with a PhD. 
These are folks many of you know, but we also meet the everyman and the everywoman along the way. And so I went back to South Sudan to folks I had met along the way, some I knew very well, others I met for the first time in traveling around South Sudan for additional research for this book. So we meet Ayen, a returning mother who fled to Khartoum during the first war, and at the moment of independence, she, like so many others in South Sudan and Khartoum, is excited about the promise of a new beginning. And she packs up her family, she packs up her and her neighbor's children, she sells everything that she owns, she gets on a bus, she gets on another bus, she gets on a barge, and she brings her children home to a country they've never set foot in. We meet Dwap, who brings us to a sacred space in South Sudanese society, the cattle camp, and gives us insight onto different cultures in South Sudan. We meet James, a former banker who explains the scope and depth of corruption in South Sudan and how it happened. We meet Naya Queth, a young woman who is the wife of an army officer who finds herself in the middle of the worst violence in Juba in those early days and is faced with a very difficult choice. There are lots of other characters along the way. President Obama arrives on the scene. Yes, George Clooney arrives on the scene. The Pope arrives on the scene and a host of others. And lastly, a portion of the book is told through my own eyes, through first person, and that was a very difficult decision to make. I'd never written that way before. A lot of my author friends told me I was ridiculous for not using the word I. That is how we tell stories, and so that really opened up the story for me, and not because these stories are about me, but they're a window into some formative moments in that time, and I think help bring a first-person perspective to some of the book's larger themes. So, first, the basics. At the time of independence, this is also at Freedom Square in Juba on July the 9th, 2011. The challenges are enormous. The Southern Sudanese have to build institutions almost from scratch. They have to overcome development challenges, arguably greater than anywhere else in the world. They have to fashion a South Sudanese identity. What does it mean? What is South Sudan's national identity? They still have to settle a host of complicated divorce proceedings with Khartoum. As some of you know, the difficult issues of separation from oil and citizenship, from borders and security, a whole host of issues, economic issues, social issues, etc., that were still unresolved at the time of independence. But the South Sudanese have ample oil reserves, and they have an incredible reservoir of international goodwill. The Sudan People's Liberation Movement, or SPLM, who assumed power in 2005 of the regional government and have shepherded southern Sudan, both through the referendum and to independence, have won recent elections in South Sudan, and they must lead their new country into this new era. This flag up here, formerly the flag of the SPLM, becomes the flag of the new republic. That's a pretty loaded symbolism, by the way, as we'll see going forward. And so they face an incredibly tall task, but the slate is finally clean, and the future is theirs for the taking. But we know what happens from here. Very soon, tensions mount. Throughout the struggle and then during the interim period, the glue that had held most South Sudanese together, their shared common denominator, was their opposition to the North, their opposition to regimes in Khartoum and to the National Congress Party in particular. But once that goal was achieved, the bottom fell out. Nothing filled the void. As I mentioned, what it meant to be South Sudanese wasn't terribly well-defined. Rather than develop a new political program or build a new platform for the future, reach out to the grassroots, the SPLM, this political party that's assumed power, instead experiences a vacuum. And that vacuum before long is filled by a power struggle between the party's elites. So by 2013, less than two years after independence, President Salva Kiir faces open dissent within his own party. And the book throughout chapter 13 takes us through this final windup in 2013 before things fall apart. He ultimately sacks the entire cabinet and replaces them, including former Vice President Riek Machar. And then he, and most importantly, the men around him, attempt to wrest control of the party itself. 
Tensions continue to build, and when they reach a boiling point, a fight erupts in the capital. And these two men very quickly become the faces of the war. But this dispute was about power, first and foremost, a political fight among elites. It was not about ethnicity. But while a state had been made in South Sudan, as I've mentioned, a nation was still in the making. Ethnic allegiance in the new republic remained stronger than any other form of identity. And these two men were scions of rival ethnic communities with a troubled history. And so, in those ensuing days, each man would mobilize his ethnic base and summon the ghosts of the past. And so, what begins as an elite political dispute quickly morphs and assumes an ethnic narrative. And it spreads across the young country like wildfire in a way that many South Sudanese and many international observers were stunned by. And sadly from there, we know what happens. More than 200,000 people like young Simon, the character we meet in the prologue, seek refuge on impromptu UN bases. Tens, maybe hundreds of thousands are killed. Millions more flood across international borders. South Sudan's oil industry is undermined and what isn't sold by the government at deep discount to buy arms to fight its own people. So with that very brief introduction, I'm going to turn to our three questions. First, why did the SPLM fail? As I mentioned, this book is in one part political autopsy. I dig deeper to try and examine, with the benefit of hindsight and the input of a lot of interlocutors, the reasons why the SPLM failed. And so we'll begin there. This movement, the SPLM, was a political and military force championed in the region and around the world in many ways for challenging those repressive governments in the north. And while that was understandable on one level, as you might well expect, there was more to the story. Looking at the SPLM in relationship to Khartoum and in relationship to those structural problems was one thing. But looking inside the SPLM at what was happening inside South Sudan during this period, both during the days of liberation struggle and during the interim period, was quite another. And it was somewhere most of its foreign patrons, both in the region but also in the United Kingdom, in Norway, and elsewhere in Europe and in America, failed to give sufficient attention, in my view. I'm going to read you a brief opening passage from Chapter 9, which is about the SPLM, called A Very Greedy Boy. This is from the interim period. Something was rotten in the almost state of South Sudan. Drunk on newly acquired power, the SPLM would go down the path of so many guerrillas come governors, failing to live up to the ideals for which they ostensibly fought. Elevated by their status as custodians of that 2005 peace agreement and milking their reputation as liberators, the ruling clique wielded power as they saw fit and erased any line between their party and the state or the regional government in South Sudan. While most outsiders paid attention, as I mentioned, to Sudan's volatile north-south axis, the SPLM Old Guard would forcibly suppress dissent at home. They would siphon millions from state coffers. They would rig national elections and circumvent rather than build institutions. They had little time for democracy and cracked down on anyone who didn't appreciate it. The party justified this firm grip on power in part through a prevailing sense of mission not yet accomplished. Now remember, this is in the interim period. The referendum and independence are no sure thing at this point, but many would argue that they manipulated this reality. In their mind and in their rhetoric, South Sudan would not be free until it got to the referendum, and so these measures were justified. As this period approached its climax in 2011, the possibility of a return to war with Sudan was very real, and there was no room for error or for internal division in the South. The great irony, however, was that the SPLM, in its heavy-handed ways, appeared to be mimicking the very regime in Khartoum it had so long fought to escape. So rather than beginning to build the kind of democracy it had articulated in its founding documents, the SPLM's top men, and they were mostly men, presided over an increasingly concentrated, corrupt, and authoritarian system that would foster not nation-building and cohesion, but instability and division. One can imagine, then, that this dissent would come to the surface in due course, both in South Sudan and within the party itself, and ultimately contribute to the country's collapse. 
So in 2016, in writing this book, I hope to revisit this party failure, as we're doing today, in a new light. Piecing this together meant seeking out the insights of top-tier members of the SPLM, and I did speak with most of them, as well as the party's most ardent critics, both inside the country and out, as well as longtime observers and, most importantly, of ordinary South Sudanese. Three answers emerged. First, the character of the movement from its earliest days. A proper autopsy thus, in my mind, can't begin in 2013, or in 2011, or even in 2005, but must begin long before that. This man, John Grang, was by all accounts an extraordinary individual, a visionary, and yet perhaps overlearning the lessons of failed rebel movements past in Sudan, he resolved to maintain unity on his new movement by keeping a firm and singular grip on the SPLM. He sidelined rivals, dealt ruthlessly with his scent, had several of his would-be challengers assassinated, and he ran the movement, as his critics argued, out of his briefcase. Garang's supporters, many of whom I talked to for this, argued that his vision and manifesto were in fact democratic and that his forceful rule was a temporary means to a lasting end. But even they, many of them, and we can argue about their motivations, even many of them now acknowledge his, quote, dictatorial ways, as one of his close lieutenants told me, ascribing the party's ultimate failure in part to the ethos of the movement that he and they built. John Garang's critics argue that he didn't develop organized political cadres, training only a sycophantic group of loyalists to support him. Demands for reform inside the SPLM reached a boil on several occasions, once splitting the movement in half, as many of you know, with devastating consequences that reach all the way to the conflict dynamics on the ground today. One Western diplomat who I interviewed for this book as well, and who was intimately involved in the peace negotiation with the 90s and the relations with the SPLM admitted, Garang, quote, was busy manipulating all these foreigners into putting pressure on Khartoum. He wasn't building up anything inside the country. He thought he could do that later. He was not building an organization at all. And so when he died in a helicopter crash, unexpectedly in 2005, quote, there was nothing left. The second explanation that arose for the SPLM failure was the absence during the struggle of any real meaningful connection with its own population. For all its Marxist rhetoric at the time, the SBLA did too little to cultivate the civilian population in furtherance of its own revolutionary cause. Unlike some of its peer movements in the region, the SBLA was in many ways not a, quote, people's army, but too often derived legitimacy and fueled its rebellion instead through foreign support, both in the region and further afield. Quote, we were not self-reliant, one of them told me last year. We were spoiled. We had everything we needed from the start. Guns, food, supporters. So we never had any kind of relationship with the people. Neither people, nor economic or social development, were necessarily at the center of the SPLA's agenda. They were secondary to military objectives and the pursuit of power. Worse yet, when the SPLA didn't get what they needed from external sources, they preyed on their fellow South Sudanese. And so while many rallied to the cause of liberation, divisions and deep resentment were also sown in the earliest days across many communities, Newer, Equatorian, and other South Sudanese communities. The SPLA was the strongest force in South Sudan ultimately, but it was by no means the only one, and it did not represent considerable swaths of the population. And I think this is something that was critically misunderstood both at the time and continues to be that way today. These grievances that I've outlined continued into the interim period, but were suppressed in furtherance of the liberation cause and the ultimate shared goal of independence. But we see them, as I mentioned, clearly in the conflict that persists today. The third answer as to the SPLM's failure, party factionalism, and a vicious battle for control of the SPLM in the wake of John Garang's death in 2005. The war that followed is often thought of as a product of a power struggle between Salva and React, the war I've outlined, the current war. 
React's profile, his presidential ambitions, the devastating legacy of his dividing the SPLA in 1991, and a history of tension and violence between the Dinka Newware communities all help to inform this narrative of a battle between two visible strongmen. But South Sudan's unmaking cannot be understood in these terms alone. An accurate rendering of the SPLM crisis, in my view, and the war it ignited requires a much wider lens. Three camps vied for control of the decapitated movement between 2005 and when the war broke out in 2013. Many would put these into three camps, one, those of Garang. The few close disciples that I mentioned Garang had groomed and who believed themselves and who continue to believe themselves today as the rightful heirs. Those of Baro Ghazal, those from Salvaqir, John Garang's successor's home area and who had arguably one of the greatest power centers in South Sudan. And those of React Mashar. That's a complicated group in its own right, but we'll save more on that for later. These three blocks persisted throughout the eight-year stretch, each maneuvering for influence under the banner of the SPLM. And this factionalism was deeply corrosive consuming the attention of its elites at a time when South Sudan, given the challenges I mentioned, needed all hands on deck. The second question about which this book goes into considerable detail. This book and this story, in my mind, is also a story about the best and worst of the West. Both its big-hearted ideals, its values-based foreign policy, and at the same time, its difficult reckoning with the limits of Western influence in a changing global order. What was all this about, anyway? Lots of people know about the West involvement in Sudan. Lots of people know the outsized engagement of both European partners, as I mentioned, and particularly the United States. Why did they take such an outsized interest in South Sudan? This is Roger Winter, early American supporter of the SPLM. Susan Rice and Salva Kiir. And yes, you guessed it, even Hollywood celebrities. How did this happen? John Garang's Marxist, or at least nominally Marxist, organization, as some of you know, started with support from Ethiopia during the Cold War years. But when the Cold War ends, John Garang says, we're on the wrong side of history. We've got to get on the right side. And so he goes to America, a place that he has studied as an undergraduate and as a PhD. He spent a lot of time there as well as an army officer. And this cultural curriculum he learns over the years really serves him when he goes to promote his new movement. John Garang employs what many would call his legendary charisma, his personal charm and familiarity with American culture to great effect. He sells religious persecution to Christian evangelicals, slavery and racism to the Congressional Black Caucus, human rights abuses to various advocacy groups. One supporter from those early years who used to help him out also told me about taking Garang to a two churches on the same morning in Midland, Texas. One liberal, the other conservative, and Garang went through his Bible and picked out Bible verses to cater to each crowd. Said it was absolutely remarkable to watch him. He's very effective. And by the mid-1990s, the SPLM had come from the wrong side of the Cold War divide, used to not be able to get meetings in Washington, and now they've cultivated an army of true believers. And Garang knows, in particular, he invests in the staying power of the United States Congress. And so he develops relationships with congressmen from both the political left and the political right, and importantly, with their staffers. Later, in the early 2000s, the war in Darfur gives rise to an unprecedented Western advocacy movement, the Save Darfur movement, as many of you are familiar with. This ultimately hardens global opinion against Khartoum and in turn builds only stronger support for the SPLM and Southern Sudan among its Western backers. As I mentioned, this really unprecedented coalition becomes even bigger, even stronger, adds more constituencies. As I mentioned, politicians from right and left, ideologues and activists, members of the Christian right and the Hollywood left. George Clooney on one hand, Franklin Gam on the other. Donald Payne for the Democrats, Frank Wolf for the Republicans. It's really unprecedented. We haven't seen really an external movement of support like this since the anti-apartheid movement. And we really, I'd argue, haven't seen much sense in this bipartisan way in the United States. And as an aside, 
Chapter 4 of this book does go into great detail about the war in Darfur, and I would argue it's a lot more connected to what ultimately happens in Sudan and in South Sudan than people realize. I think the Save Darfur movement brought really important attention to the really devastating atrocities that were happening in Darfur, and at the same time, I think the tenor of that movement, the approach, the oversimplification, ultimately rallied a lot of the people to the cause, but arguably made peace harder to achieve in Darfur. Back to South Sudan. Without the United States and its Western partners, simply put, there would be no Republic of South Sudan. As I mentioned, American officials in Congress and three White Houses, together with a vocal activist community, both in the United States and Europe, developed a special relationship with the South's underdog guerrillas. Those ties helped deliver aid to war-ravaged communities, and they helped put John Garang's liberation fighters on the map. The Americans, their allies in Europe and in the region, helped isolate the SPLM's enemies in Khartoum. They helped end the Civil War, and they helped guarantee that right to self-determination and to safeguard independence. In the end, this meant that a new state was born in Africa, and Washington and its partners were the midwife. Born of moral outrage and advanced with a really righteous zeal, this partnership would help these underdogs to achieve lofty goals. But in time, I argue in detail in the book, it would also help nurture the seeds of the new republic's collapse. This is a quote from one of South Sudan's most ardent supporters, one of its earliest advocates in the United States, who I talked with at great length for this project. Most folks who were behind the project at the time aren't willing to acknowledge this, and I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but there's not a lot of soul-searching, and I really had some interesting conversations with this one. You can become close to someone and still be a tough friend. We were never a tough friend, and I think that really sums it up. I would argue that a simplified narrative, an unqualified often belief in the rightness of the cause, and a compulsion to act together distorted U.S. policy and blinded Western supporters to the flaws of their chosen heroes. Over time, this uncritical embrace warped the political space in South Sudan. It reinforced the dynamic in which the SPLM was all too often accountable not to its own people, but to a constituency of foreign supporters willing to back them, apparently, at any price. Neither Washington nor Juba's other international partners, in my view, are wholly or even principally to blame for South Sudan's unraveling, as the nation's fate does not belong to outsiders. But because Western countries adopted the cause, leaned on the scales, and in my view moved on too soon, I think the role of the West deserves critical reflection. I think there are important things to learn here for South Sudan, but more importantly, I think there are things to learn for international engagement anywhere in the world. That brings us to our last question. I talked to McCall and some others here today, South Sudanese, who often get this question, and I'm interested in the views of this room. When the pace of South Sudan's civil war slowed in 2014, and the protracted negotiations supplanted the headline-grabbing violence, a broader realization began to set in, both in the region and elsewhere. The country's internationally celebrated birth had given way to disaster, one of the world's worst, in less than three years' time. The making and unmaking of South Sudan, as I argue in this book, warranted critical review a hard look at where both national and international actors had gone wrong. But some critics and commentators at the time, in my opinion, took the argument a step too far. They went beyond criticizing failures, attempting to understand those failures, and instead suggested that South Sudan's new conflict was evidence that South Sudan should never have become independent in the first place. This was a narrow and in some ways lazy argument, I believed, and it failed on the first count to appreciate the history, context, and likely alternative to secession in 2011. For one, South Sudan was already among the most neglected place on earth, denied political representation, economic opportunity, and social justice for generations. It had resisted forcible attempts to supplant its cultural identity. It lost millions of people to war, starvation, and flight. 
The question of independence was not new. It had been debated since before London turned the state over to Northerners in 1956. Had the citizens of southern Sudan, in my opinion, been denied that referendum in 2011 with the CPA in place, I think it's very likely that a new and larger war would have ensued with Khartoum. With two armies on high alert, each as a result of oil revenue, now far better armed than they were a decade earlier, yet another civil war would have come at horrific human cost. I also think it's very likely that it would have drawn in neighboring states in a protracted battle with devastating consequences for the entire region. But there was more to consider than the immediate circumstances of 2011. If we zoomed out more broadly, didn't Southern Sudan, didn't Southern independence represent the righting of historical wrong? The community of nations had long enshrined the people, a people's right to, quote, determine their own destiny. After generations, as I mentioned, of political exclusion, and violent subjugation, southern Sudan seemed to present as clear a case as any of a people being denied a chance to choose their own political destiny. South Sudan's transition to independent self-governance would inevitably be rocky, and too little attention was paid, as I'll argue, to questions of the state's viability. Nonetheless, separation seemed to offer a better opportunity than another half-century of violence in a country where many felt they had never been treated as equals. Did South Sudan's liberation class fail to make good on this golden opportunity, squandering, as I mentioned, both international goodwill and the kind of oil revenues many states would kill for? Yes. Did the country's African and Western backers need to engage in some serious soul-searching, having helped deliver independence, only to leave the fragile project dangerously unfinished? Yes. But to suggest that South Sudan would have been better off remaining within an unreformed Sudan, or to suggest that violent collapse in South Sudan was inevitable? This, I believe, is narrow thinking. Independence, I would argue, was not inherently a mistake. The more pertinent critiques and the ones that I go into in the book are those of expectations and of execution. With so much attention consumed in securing sovereignty itself during this period, the territory's leaders and their international backers had a full plate, but they did too little to prepare the political, social, and economic foundations for a viable state. So political theorists have long debated the sources of state formation, roughly speaking, the gradual process by which self-governments exert authority over territory and states are made. In this, they take a special role in the interest of violence. Does South Sudan's war signal a breakdown of political order, they might ask, or is it a central element in its formation? Does the violence mean that it cannot stand on its own, or will it ultimately prove an awful but formative part of its becoming a state? Economics and social cohesion also feature in the discourse on state formation, and these two I look into in the book, wrestling with each, both of my own account and with many South Sudanese. At the same time, however, critics also rightly take aim at the international state-building enterprise in South Sudan, and I think there are surely lessons to learn here. In particular, sometimes quixotic expectations and unrealistic timelines, which ignore the reality that states mature over generations, not overnight. And in this, I often like to think of how much gets done in a single parliamentary session or a single term of Congress. The southern regional government had existed for just six years before it raised the flag in 2011, and the independent government less than three under its belt when things came undone in 2013. In other words, South Sudan was not even a decade into its transition from brutal war to free and peaceful self-government. It wasn't so long ago that my own country fought a civil war to the tune of 750,000 deaths over identity, economy, and the nature of their state. 
The historical perspective in South Sudan, I thought, was sometimes lost, and the assumption that South Sudanese should simply short-circuit the kind of violence and protracted turmoil that characterized this formation of states elsewhere. And South Sudan is an interesting case, because it comes into being after many of its peers in Africa had already done so. Drawing lessons from generations of human and societal experience was one thing. Leapfrogging it altogether was quite another. And so while it might be unsatisfying, I think it is in this, or more realistic time horizon, that I situate my own optimism for South Sudan's future. With that, I'll end acknowledging again that we're only scratching the surface here. I look forward to questions and discussions, especially from this group, so many well-informed folks and with so many Sudanese and South Sudanese. I'm looking forward to that. I hope you will enjoy and read the book. I hope you will wrestle with its characters, their decisions, the difficult choices made, and experience it as I did with the benefit of hindsight. Learn some new pieces of the puzzle and then make your own conclusions. Thank you for coming and forward to a discussion. Thank you very much.